0: Welcome back again to Red Star Radio for this, our second edition of the week. Hope you enjoyed the first one. And to continue a theme, perhaps, we're going to be looking today at two things. First of all, we're going to be giving you a rundown of what's known popularly as the PRO Act in U.S. Um, hyperventilating petty bourgeois circles, and um, And what that means in terms of it being a supposedly pro-Labour piece of legislation, supposedly something that can make uh, organising workers easier inside the United States and asking the question whether or not that actually does or not. And as a direct link from that, we're then going to move into a discussion of the seminal work of Lenin uh, known as State and Revolution. And hopefully uh, we'll be able to illustrate why those two subjects very much link up together in the form of the the view of the state and how differing trends of socialist thought have actually viewed the capitalist state over the 105 years or so since Lenin first started writing about uh, that particular topic. But to dive straight in, We'll begin with a bit of a run through of the details of the PRO Act, a contemporary piece of analysis for you here, and what it means and uh, why it's being talked about so much. So to summarise in very brief terms what the PRO Act actually is, it's a piece of legislation that's been long sought after by the various uh, high-ranking trade union bureaucrats in the United States, the various heads of the AFL-CIO, the umbrella union body there, uh, with the idea that this was something that is going to remove certain barriers which they say, are uh, blocking the ability of unions to organize new groups of workers, particularly gig economy workers, agency workers. They're kind of people who exist on more precarious contract situations than people who are uh, existing on more typical uh, contracts of employment. Now, for all the hyperbole and the scouting, shouting and the screaming about this from the DSA and people like that acting it's as if this is the panacea, the... Um, the magic, the one weird trick to revive contemporary trade unionism, the actual reality of the PRO Act is a little more mundane. And once you read through it, you can see that there are some helpful things in there for unions, and I'll come to those in a minute. But it's in general, it isn't going to be the great weird trick to revive trade unionism that the AFL-CIO is claiming that it is, and that the... The reformists in the DSA are claiming that it will be because no piece of legislation on its own can revive a 60 plus year decline of trade unionism in the United States. But uh, Leila, before we get into the details, did you want to say anything on the the subject of the PRO Act in general?
1: Yeah, I think I think a lot of the glee and excitement around this act is Partially due to the fact that people are not aware of other labor law regimes in other places in the world, namely Canada, which is just north of the United States. Like a lot of the stuff that's in the PRO Act has been law in Canada, excuse me, for decades. And um, it's not helped stem the decline of unions in Canada. Um, yes, we do have more density. But that is mainly because we have a bigger welfare state and most of the unionization is in the public sector. And that's why it's relatively high. It's still not super high. And that's why it's relatively high in Canada relative to the United States. So I think if people just kind of thought a little bit more broadly, they would see that number one, these reforms are not that exciting. Um, They've been around in many countries for a while. And yeah, number two, they're not that effective. (laughs) So but... That's not to say that I don't think they would be good for labor. Um, they are good for labor. But I think we need to kind of relativize things properly.
0: Yeah. And to look at these some of the specific details from the PRO Act itself, and this is all from the piece of legislation that went through the House of Representatives a couple of weeks ago. So this is all taken directly from the text itself. So one of the major things that it actually does is it does offer some tightening up of the legislation around who is classified as an employer or not. Now, to specify as to why this is, it can be or it can be important to unions who are looking to organize workers. In order to actually get the right of collective bargaining, which is a key objective of trade unionism you have to actually be able to find an employer to bargain with and one of the tricks that employers have used for quite a long time is, especially when it comes to agency workers and those defined as gig economy workers is to first of all deny that the um, th- that the employer is the employer and to explain what that means. Often where you get a situation where you have uh, a lot of um, Workers coming into a, a, an employer who are from, so provided by an employment agency, of course the hiring employer won't be defined as the actual employer, it will be the agency that's defined as the employer. And that creates a difficulty for trying to do any kind of unionization, and I've experienced this directly myself, in that you, who do you negotiate with? Who do you try and claim collective bargaining with? Do you try to claim it with the agency or do you try and claim it with the hiring company? And in some cases now you get situations where what is meant to be temporary positions filled by agency workers are in fact full-time positions that have been classified as agency for the purposes of the employer doing basically an accountancy trick and claiming it doesn't have as many employees as it actually does. So what this piece of legislation does is it tightens up slightly around the idea and the wording of who an employer is it says things like um, uh, you can be classified as an employer if you are setting the majority of terms and conditions of the particular workforce so to give an indication as to why that is useful um, a place i used to work in uh, where i was trying to organize a bunch of agency workers the and then you would try and bargain with the 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 direct, the main employer the employer would say well that we don't set their terms and conditions that's set by the agency but of course then you go to the agency and the agency says no no this is just something which is given to us by the hiring employer so in reality it will be the hiring employer who sets a lot of the terms so by clarifying that you, they can be classed as the employer um, in this situation it does make the job of labor organizers a little bit easier in terms of forcing a negotiation if you manage to get some workers organized so that is a step forward and it's an important one because if you if you are in that situation you can just be batted back from pillar to post in endless delaying tactics by the agency and the and and the, and the employer so that's important and i if i was in a situation where i was trying to organize people i that would be something that would be useful A useful tool for me in terms of actually getting somewhere in terms of trying to bargain with the employer. Um, Definition of supervision is also tightened up, as in who your supervisor, who your manager is, uh, because, again, a lot of uh, workplaces that use a lot of agency labor um, and also, of course, in the gig economy, Claim that there's no direct supervision or claim that the supervision is rather muddled, whereas this clearly defines um who a supervisor or who who is providing this the supervisory capacity is so again that 's useful and the other the final two points I wanted to make was that they There is a lot of extensive language in there, which is quite obviously targeted at Amazon and some of the other big employers over um, not um, discriminating against employees who choose to join a union, not being able to just, or theoretically at least, not being able to just straight up fire people who try and organize, even including some, some moderate provisions to protect people who take strike action i.e., you can't, the employer, uh, it is now considered a bad labor practice, and the employer can be taken to with the US equivalent of a tribunal if they sack somebody for going on strike. Um, there's a clause in there which says that the employer cannot force uh, workers to attend uh, mandatory anti union briefing sessions, which Amazon is uh, notorious for doing, and that it uh, makes it a bad labor practice, again, that's the language of the acts I'm using there, to uh, force employees to sign contracts which include anti-union clauses in them. So if you want to work here, so that an employer like Amazon or somebody else could say, if you want to work here, you have to sign this contract which has a no union clause in it, meaning that if you try and join a union or let alone try and organize in one, then you can be fired instantly. So it makes that more legally difficult in theory for the employer to do. All of those things, I would argue, are, on the face of them, positive steps forward in terms of it can make the union's job a little easier in terms of claiming for collective bargaining rights, and it can also reduce perhaps some of the fear that workers will have of being just instantly fired if they so much as look at a union membership form. It also has some stuff in there about the employer being obligated to inform uh, uh, workers of their rights to join a union, that they have to advertise the fact that their you know, are, workers are free to join a union. Again, can be useful in certain circumstances where you're trying to remove some of the fear and anxiety that a lot of precarious workers especially will have about unionization. So I would argue that regardless of the uh, comparative weakness of the enforcement terms of this act, those those terms within it, if they were to be implemented, would actually be useful for um, anybody who's actually trying to organize a group of workers on the ground. Um, Did you want to come in if anything there?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I just think a lot of these things. um, So I think right now what unions tend to do a lot of the time, same in Canada, and I'm assuming same in the UK, is that they tend to fixate on kind of trends in labor, (laughs) Whatever. So, like, uh, the PRO Act has a lot to do with the gig economy and trying to figure out ways of organizing workers in the gig economy. Um, But the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of workers are, you know, permanent full time people. Like, many workers have a second job, right? That's why we have a higher percentage of people who are part of the gig economy. So, the BLS reported that reports that like 36% of workers are a part of the gig economy, but it's not their primary job. So, um, I just find like the attention on gig work a bit quizzling. Uh, I don't know why this is such a big issue with the unions when you have tons of just regular factory workers that are non-union that are way easier to organize than gig workers for a whole variety of reasons that they haven't gone out and organized. Um, I mean, I think that these protections are good. Um, I would never oppose them, but I just think that, yeah, like, um, the protection from getting fired if you look into a union, like, what is, that's not, I suppose, in theory, one could go to the labor board in the United States and um, contest a firing, and that does happen in Canada, for instance. Like, so if um, a union is trying to organize a unit and someone gets fired, they can bring that person to the labor board of the province and um, basically they get like an automatic union um, at the workplace. So it can work really well sometimes, but it just doesn't happen very often. <laughs> so it doesn't, like these things are good, like on paper, but in practice, like they just, I'm telling you guys, like I live in Canada, these things we have already and we've had for a while and they just don't work out in practice. The The root of the issue is not really the bad laws, the good laws. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm
0: understanding. Yeah, the, I, I think the the you can't union bureaucrats get lost in the idea that they can essentially find uh, an easy way back to mass union membership, and because they've lost that, certainly in this, well, certainly in Britain and the United States and Canada as well, the union numbers have been in a steep decline for a long time now, and they keep looking for a way to sort of magic their way back to high membership numbers. They don't, because of the nature of the people who run the unions being lifetime bureaucrats, don't actually see the fact that whenever the union movement in Britain certainly took a step forward, it was because a new layer of workers steps forward and organises themselves, and that sparks a new wave of militant struggle. That was the case all the way through the nineteenth century. And uh, and that was the case with the union movement kept building its numbers all the way up to the early nineteen eighties till the point when we had thirteen and a half million people in trade unions in nineteen eighty. That was that wasn't because of some great initiative from the union leaders, it was because there was this almost do you, do it yourself attitude on behalf of the working class, which is that their militancy and continued militancy all the way from the end of World War II up to the mid-80s, that's what generated the numbers in unions. Unions were filling up with people because different layers of the workforce saw that militancy was working and that it was actually advancing the cause of the working class and was for a a number of years in a row and then when the working class's gains came under attack from the late 60s through to the middle 70s the unions were seen as being strong enough to actually withstand that attack and push the employers backwards that's why people were joining it wasn't because like um, Jack Jones or Hugh Scanlon or any of the other big union leaders of the time were particular geniuses even though of course they were Generate. They were better leaders than anything we've got now because they came about in a more political, at uh, an era of more political milit and industrial militancy. But the the pro act isn't going to uh, fix the problem that the U.S. unions have had, which is that they've been the, the capitalists went scorched earth on them yeah. from the mid forties onwards. That's not going to, it's not going to change anything. What will change U.S. trade unionism, what will change U.S. working class power is when a layer of the workforce, the well, a layer of the labor force s- steps up or, and organizes itself often on the basis of organizing from scratch, not through existing institutions because those are often completely hidebound and bureaucratized, um, steps forward and organises themselves and actually forces the employers to make concessions. That's what revived trade unionism in Britain at the end of the 19th century. It's what caused all the concessions to be made post-World War Two. So until you get that, then all this legislative fiddling, even if it passes the Senate, which it won't, is... Essentially, like, well, okay, that's nice, yeah, but it doesn't solve anything. Uh, but from the point of view of those social democrats in the DSA who see an increased role for the state in terms of the state being able to arbitrate more in labour disputes, which don't labour disputes which aren't happening at the moment. Um, if if your point of view is, well, wouldn't it be great if there was a tripartite board to administer this? Then it looks great. But tripartite boards and, like, freeway discussions with the employers and the unions and the government, that's not what makes a powerful union movement, and it never was. And by, tra- by running around and trying to sell this as some sort of gigantic advance, well, they're, of course, they're overselling it, as they always do.
1: Yeah, and I also think that, like, um, the way that this has been approached is obviously doomed to fail. Okay, like, the kinds of laws or regulations that are in the PRO Act were one in Canada, so many of them like so for instance, um, the PRO Act um, um, mandates that employers must bargain with a union. Um, which currently does not exist in the United States. So that's why it's such a hard – like, labor has such a hard time getting a union going because the employer will just not come to the table for, like, months and months and months and, like, break the will of the people trying to unionize. Um, So we won that in Canada in 1944 as a result of militancy, okay? So you have to understand the direction through which that kind of regulation was coming, So it was World War II, we had a like basically full employment in order to meet the demands of war production and uh, labor was feeling strong because they were, they were strong, they were fully employed and they would just continuously walk out on the job to get better conditions and better wages. They would walk out, they would strike, they would do work stoppages, and this would interrupt production as the boss would try to hold out and see if they could just starve the workers back in. So the government was forced to install this law because it needed to keep production going, right? Because if workers were going on strike anymore, this would cause too many interruptions. And because individual capitalists can't really see the whole from their individual situation, they're not going to... Do anything to rectify that. So the government had to walk in and, and rectify it with a law in 1984, the Privy Council Act of, um, uh, the Privy Council Act um, 1003. So, um, this was some. This was a win by the working class at the time. So yes, all of these kind of trade union wins are dialectical. They both, they ultimately the dialectic gets kind of pushed towards the capitalist side because it. You know, trade unions can never overcome capitalism. So all trade union gains are kind of like that. But it was still a win because it came as a result of worker militancy. Where's the worker militancy trying to push through the pro act? There's, it's, it's entirely, um, from the union bureaucracy. So like, it's not like there's no chance this is going to pass. Number one, because actually, um, unions, even though they, are ultimately, you know, they have been uh, incorporated into the capitalist state. Employers would still rather not have a union at work, no matter how bureaucratic and how ineffective they are, they would still not rather not have one in the vast majority of cases, except for maybe a company union, like the type they have in Japan or China, maybe. Um, So um, it's not going to pass because employers actually do not want these things to pass. Like They actually do not have an interest in unions at all. Like no union is much better for them than a union. Um, And I think that's something that people are kind of ignoring, like um, to think that the state is going to pass something which um, does not like will, uh, will bother the capitalist class unless they really have to, as in the situation in Canada, because of the unique situation, which we had with the war they're not going to do that, right? So people both celebrating that the state is or the Democrats are like waking up or something and ready to give labor their rights, or people saying, "Oh, this is a um, this is a, a trick by the unions to like um, like uh, uh, lasso them in and you know reduce their militancy so that they." They will uh, subsume their um, their power underneath um, marginal trade union wins. None of those two things are true because there's no militancy to begin with. So we can I think we can entirely understand this bill as simply um, a quid pro quo uh, between the Democrats and the union bureaucracy who came out for Biden. And uh, now Biden's going to say, OK, I came out for you guys. I tried to get this thing passed. It passed the um, Congress. But... Oh well, so sad I can't really do anything about the filibuster stuff. It doesn't pass the Senate. End of story. That's just gonna it's just gonna be like this back and forth thing. There's nothing more to it. It's very surface level level because it doesn't come from a place where it would be meaningful, i.e. it's not coming from labor.
0: Yeah, exactly. Without <clears throat> without the actual militant role of the working class, then none of the none of this bureaucratic fiddling can will mean anything. And To give an indication as to how this is a dialectical process, we look at another historical example, which is that the um, unions in Britain from the mid-60s onwards, um, of course, the working class comes under sustained attack in Britain after around about 64, as the rate of profit dips quite severely and the um, British finance capital starts trying to push through fundamental changes in how the British economy works in, to, in order to boost its own interests. And of course, the working class resists and it, this resistance rapidly becomes very militant and widespread. So that, And also, it's something which escapes completely the control of the trade union bureaucracy. They, um, the trade union leaders, are as scared of it as the Labour government of Harold Wilson was at the time. So when Wilson tried to introduce like um, <clears throat> some legal binding on trade unions to try and stop the militancy in like '68 with a with a document written by a cabinet minister called Barbara Castle, known as the In Place of Strife uh, uh, document, uh, that was something which the union leaders may well have been willing to go along with. But what happened was there was a rebellion from the grassroots of the union, starting with the National Union of Mine Workers and uh, the up-and-coming leader, future leader of that, Arthur Scargill, but also a lot of other rank-and-file workers, led walkouts from the factories and mines and steel mills and basically made it clear to the union leaders, well, if you don't resist this and tell Wilson to pack it in, then we'll just walk out anyway. And you lot will be left like a bunch of generals without an army. And so the Union leaders are then forced into a point where they have to tell Wilson, well, you can't do it. And then, of course, this struggle then carries on all the way through the 70s. But what become what is then brought in by Wilson when he gets back into power in 1974 um, is he is faced with a unified, a, more, a very unified working class taking militant action over and over again against the conser- former Conservative government of Heath. So what he does is he manages to put in place a series of bureaucratic tripartite arrangements between the union leaders, the representatives of the, the employers through the Confederation of British Industry, and the government. And then says, okay, well, we're going to try and solve all these industrial disputes by having this tripartite arrangement. And for a lot of reasons, which it will take me too long to go through, what he succeeded in doing was damping down that mood of generalized militancy, binding the workers through their unions into a bureaucratic structure within the capitalist state to to supposedly solve these issues in reality just slowing down struggle making sure struggle's petered out demoralising the working class politically and industrially to the point where By the time you get Thatcher in 79, the working class is now divided. The most militant section of it in the the form of the miners is separated out from the the less militant sections of it. The generalised struggle of the early 70s has been dissipated and destroyed partially through these bureaucratic tripartite methods. And what I, I bring that up is because that shows you how different measures at different times are, of course, dictated by the rhythm of class struggle, the strength of the working class, the strength of the reformists and the trade union leaders in this case, and also that those measures back then were and should have been regarded as wholly reactionary because you have a situation of rising working class militancy and working class consciousness being put and set back and tied down by these structures that are put in place. Whereas if they suddenly brought those structures back today in the situation where we've had like 40 plus years of defeats and um, uh, bureaucratic tying down even further of the union movement, if we went back to the laws as they were in 1978, it would, in a bureaucratic fashion, be something of a step forward. Because the, the nature of the class struggle has changed through the defeat of the working class and the throwing back of their rights. So what was reactionary in one period can be seen as more progressive in another. If and um, that's what you have to bear in mind when looking at changes like the PRO Act,
1: yeah, I, I, it's, it's so um dishonest for anyone to say that the things in the PRO Act would not be helpful to labor at this time, okay, because you're basically saying if you think that this PRO Act is some kind of actually anti labor legislation. You're basically saying that you think the working class would be better off if there was 0% union density in the United States. Do you really believe that? Like, the answer is obviously no. Like, it's better to have a little bit of protection, a little bit of protection against inflation so you can keep a bit of your wages for some segment of the working class. Like, just decimating everything and going back to point zero isn't going to help the situation. Um, The unions are going to die on their own. They're too stupid to do anything at this point because they're led by useless people, as useless as the bourgeois uh, politicians and the bourgeois scientists that exist currently. The the exact same class.
0: But with less power.
1: (laughs) (laughs) With Less power, yeah. Um, So they're going to die out anyways. Um, You know, I think think, uh, the PRO Act, if it were even to stem the flow a little bit and to give... Uh, to give U.S. labor a bit more running room to to start to reorganize and start new unions and new institutions, um, I think that would be good. I think I think that would be a net. Um, it would be. It w- it's always good and bad, like trade union stuff and capitalism. It, it is always good and bad. But I think there would be enough good to justify. That kind of thing. But it's, it's never going to happen because of that reason. Because of the fact that it would be more beneficial to labor right now to have these laws in place than not, um, that's why it will not be passed. And so any discussion on this is kind of moot because it won't pass. and a story. Um, exactly. There's a very obvious reason why it won't um, because it would actually help labor. <laughs> like yeah
0: um, and uh, that's and that's what the senate is there the senate vote is there to make sure that these measures don't pass
1: yeah it would it would help labor but it would uh without helping the capitalist class at the same time because they don't they would prefer they would prefer there there to be 0% labor density uh, sorry union density in the United States they would love that um so yeah and i, I don't think they're going to get their wish like i think that you know, workers will start to reorganize before it gets to that point but um yeah, like to, to pretend as if, like, um, capitalists somehow like unions, it's, it's not true. They don't, they hate unions. <laughs> Any boss? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, you know, um, the, I've seen, I don't know if I should mention this, maybe cut this out if you want to, but um, the people complaining about the fact that um, workers, would, it, the, the PRO Act is, uh, it, it would legislate close shops meaning that when you enter a workplace, you're basically forced to be in the union. That's what we have in Canada. We had that for years. Um, like, you know, if workers don't like that, that's not like people are saying this is an oppressive thing or something to force a worker to, and this is like a, an argument from the right as well. Guess what? If workers don't like the union at their work, um, if a worker doesn't like it, for instance, and he goes to his or her boss and asks the boss, hey, can you help me break the union at, at, at this workplace? Boss will give you all the help you need. <laughs> Boss <laughs> will help you out, and you will, and will help you out with your decertification decertification campaign. Heck, he might even promote you. <laughs> Give he you a raise. Might even race. get to be
0: head of HR.
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, workers don't need to worry about that. Uh, if they don't like it, they can easily decertify the the unit at their work. Um, it happens all the time. Um, but the closed shops are helpful in this point in history. Um, because an open shop, meaning where people don't have to join the union when they join the the workplace, uh, like the current regime in the United States, is very disruptive and very – it it really breaks down union power um, at this point in history, and that's just the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. We had
0: closed shops in this country for a long time. Um, What made them them a a generally progressive measure, though, was because a lot of the power was actually with the workforce themselves – as to the enforcement of it. So, like, the employer was forced to effectively um, tell people who join who join the companies, well, you have to be a member of the union because the workforce themselves actually enforced closed shop measures. Um, basically, you got bullied if you didn't join the union, and quite rightly so um, because... If you're standing outside of the collective bargaining structure whilst benefiting from it well first of all you're a parasite second of all the um, The employer loves people being outside of the union structure. The more, the better, because the more that stand outside of it, the more they can delegitimize the union in the first place. So if you get to a point where the workforce themselves, as they used to be able to do in certain factories and other industrial concerns in Britain, are able to enforce a closed shop, then that's a sign of great working class strength and can be something which is very beneficial for the working class. Now, of course... That's not something that uh, in American labor relations right now, uh, the working class is either capable of enforcing or that the bureaucracy is capable of demanding. So, again, it's a controversy about something which is just, at this stage, not on the cards. And when it will be on the cards, it has been shown in the past that this is something the workers themselves demand and can actually, if they're powerful enough, can actually enforce.
1: Anyways, this is all... This is. This is probably too stupid. We've spent like a half hour on this. I think we can move on. Like the PRO Act isn't going to pass anyway. There's no point in analyzing it. It's not going to fucking pass. So end of story. Um, and if it doesn't pass, I mean, if it does, I will have, a culpa, I'll have to change my analysis on unions, but um, I don't think it will pass. You'll now. have to come
0: out and, we'll both have to come out and apologize to the AFL-CIO bureaucracy <laughs> for underestimating their vast powers.
1: I'm sorry, I called you um, stupid. But- <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is a. Li- here's the link to the main body of this episode, which is going to be online in State and Revolution. You see, um, a lot of the hyperventilating from American uh, reformist socialists, social democrats, the denizens of the DSA, going around and saying, "Wouldn't it be great if we got this, uh, you know, mild piece of state arbitration through?" and not only does that sort of represent a profound uh, so say over optimism about this current political status of the uh, of the class struggle in the USA uh, but it also reflects a profound difference within um, socialist and communist thought over the role of the capitalist state over what it's um, what it's there to do how it comes about uh, what uh, the working class can and should demand from it and If it can play any role in terms of the working class's um, pursuit of actual power, if that is indeed what these social democrats actually want. Some of them say they do, but that's very doubtful. Now, Lenin dealt with a lot of these questions in a very real and practical form all the way back in 1917 for the first edition of this book, The State and Revolution, which is something that he writes whilst he's in hiding over in Finland following what's known as the July days of the Russian Revolution, where um, the working class of Petrograd that were aligned with the Bolsheviks tried to move against the provisional government and they ultimately that peters out and the provisional government of Kerensky then cracks down on them and Lenin and other key Bolshevik leaders go into hiding, their paper is suppressed and so to in this period when he's in hiding Lenin writes The State and Revolution which is his bringing together of a lot of the works of Marx and Engels on the state in order to refute uh, the people in the A lot of whom were aligned with the Second International around um, thinkers like Kautsky, um, who were making various different arguments at the time as to why the state was some kind of uh, neutral body or was some kind of body that could be taken over and used by the socialist parties or the working class in general uh, so what lenin's doing in this is he's drawing a lot from marx and Engels' writings all the way from the 1840s to the 1890s and he's demonstrating it uh, comprehensively going through the each political experience and showing why marx and engels did not think that because an argument the argument from Kautsky, was that uh, the, this was the view the the reformist view was the view of Marx, Engels himself, so Lenin's refuting that. And he's stating forcefully his view as to what the approach to the state should be. And this is something which has obviously been, as with a lot of Lenin's works, it gets ignored, it gets sidelined. But it's a crucial work of Marxism in order to understand and to use as a form of analysis for understanding our contemporary debates, so we've just been talking about the pro-act and why a lot of these supposed socialists are looking to the American capitalist state to somehow revive trade unionism for them. Well, that view isn't a new view; it's something which has its origins all the way back in debates over a hundred years ago. So, and no one dealt with that more comprehensively than Lenin did, and that is one of the very good reasons why you should pay attention to this uh, piece of work that he did. Um, But we want to start by looking at the contemporary. But before um, we go to that, do you want to say anything about why this is an important piece of work and why it's important to read it?
1: Um, No, I think just discussing the contemporary understanding of what the state does um, will... I think Lenin's view is the contrast of what most people view the state as doing. So why don't we just jump in and discuss that?
0: Yeah, so contemporaneous uh, views of... The state, the capitalist state, in general, um, I would say that the the mistake that is made often and something that maybe we've we 've all made in uh, those those of us who've grown up since the beginning of what is popularly referred to as the neoliberal period is in that because the rhetoric. Of the ruling class is so very much saying, "Oh well, you know, we have to uh, cut back on state spending. We have to privatise this asset or that or the other, or we have to withdraw from certain areas of um, activity. In terms of withdraw the state from certain um, areas of activity, there has become a broadly accepted view amongst." what I would say is that the broad left from sort of mild reformists to even some of the more radical elements of it, that state action or state intervention or the state in general is either a, can be a countervailing force to the ruling class and that it can also deliver um, certain, or guarantee certain things for the working class. And that's a v- point of view which has been popularized over and over again and is a point of view that was very much the the powering force for the, the, the Corbyn and the Sanders campaigns, such as they were, for the winning of control over the American and the British governments. The idea that they could then utilize the forces of the state that would then benefit the working class. Now, it's not that that isn't possible at all or that there isn't uh points in history where that hasn't happened it's just that the general view of the broad left of the state as something which can be utilized against capital is something which is and has been fatal to workers movements and has been fatal to socialist parties and organizations because the state Being the product, as Lenin, we'll we'll go on to talk about why Lenin shows this, being the product of class contradictions and being the product of specifically um, the rule of the capitalist class is something which isn't something which can be wielded by the working class for the benefits of itself and its class interests, even when the power of the working class forces the state into concessions. That's the broad outline that I'm giving there. But did you want to come in and say more about that?
1: I mean, no, that's typically it. Like, that is basically it, rather. Um, People think that if you elect a good government that stands for workers or stands for rights or whatever you will be able to make some significant changes and advance the cause of the working class through that process, through electoralism. And This is a very, very common view. People typically do see the state as doing good stuff for the people writ large, um, or they see it as some kind of contested field where there's a, pr- a plurality of different interests competing against one another. This is like a Michael Lind type take. Um, but the Lenin uh, view is that the state is only one thing which is a instrument and a machine for, for to maintain capitalist domination and the only reason it doesn't just fully do that is because of working class resistance so there's a there's a, it basically imbo, Im, embodies the the antagonism between the capitalist class and the working class which is of course a non resolvable antagonism and so the state is basically an enemy just as an individual capitalist is.
0: Yeah, and the the nature of the state in terms of how it arises is, and Lenin talks at length about this, it arises from, as you were saying, the irreconcilability of class contradictions. In this case, the contradiction between the capitalist class and the working class or the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. And the state emerges as a i mean marx refers to it in the communist manifesto as a managing committee on behalf uh a committee to manage the affairs of the entire bourgeoisie and lenin draws from that uh, and that's in terms of his explanation of it and so what grows what grows up under under capitalism is this is this state machine which is there to both directly and rather bluntly enforce the rule of the capitalists over the working class through the direct uh, intervention via state forces and the direct um, inflicting of extreme violence through state forces on workers who go on strike or rebel against the conditions of their exploitation by the capitalist class. And also then it it can... And does serve a legitimating function for the capitalist class in the in building the the illusion of the, some sort of national unity, uh, building the illusion of some sort of um, national community embodied in the state, whereby the um, the state is acting as some sort of arbiter between the classes. All of which Lenin argues is a dangerous illusion, basically, and that the the nature, the nature of the state machine, it may take on different forms in terms of like how it appears to the working class over time. Um, as the working class's power increased throughout the nineteenth century, so the different capitalist states, be it Britain or um, the newly unified Germany or France or later the United States, uh, would work to um, smooth over the class contradictions when they got too violent because the working class had forced its way forward to such a degree as to need the state to step in and either repress the working class struggle directly or find some kind of temporary compromise in the general interests of the bourgeoisie as a class. That's uh, something that the state evolves along uh, to do, but it doesn't change its fundamental nature which is this is something which is grows to serve the needs of the bourgeoisie the it can periodically it will try to manage class conflict when it gets too severe but it is not something which the working class can turn around and then use because lenin's arguing specifically against those in russia and elsewhere in europe in the later part of world war 1 uh, when just before the Bolsheviks take power in uh, the October Revolution of 1917. Those that are arguing that, well, if we can just take, we can just win and win one more election, or if we can have a purely workers government, or if we can have the Social Democratic Party in alliance with, you know, whatever bit of the bourgeoisie is regarded as progressive, then we can start to uh, advance the cause of labour. This was like the argument of most crudely the argument of like a Edward Bernstein figure who's one of the founders of reformism, and Lenin's arguing against that. He's saying, "Well, look at how this emerges. How the state emerges. Look at the class. Look at the the fact that it's the the ruling class, the capitalist class, which is who they are obliged to build it, to build this entity, to manage the uh, to manage the class contradictions in society. So why on earth will be the workers be able to wield that for themselves?" And he's making the point that. that is not only is that impossible, but it will also lead to severe defeats when parties that are allegedly parties of the working class try to do that. Um, That's uh, my overview of uh, his summary of the nature of the capitalist state. Um, Did did you want to come in with anything on that?
1: Uh, No, that's a pretty good summary. Uh, Basically, the yeah, I mean, I think the salient point is... um, from the book that I take is um, understanding how the state arises and that it's not a natural feature of human society. It arises because there is a class antagonism that needs to be dealt with, which is why you don't see state structures in Classless societies, the only ones of which have ever existed are primitive societies, and some of which still exist, like hunter gatherer societies still exist in some places in the world. They don't have a, a state because there is no class antagonism to manage. Um, states only come into being after uh, the advent of class because you need to maintain that domination, and a key part of maintaining that domination is through violence. And so the state arises to, um, you know, as, as the, uh, I don't know who said this, but they they hold the monopoly over violence and they use it to maintain domination of one class against the other. Because domination is not a natural class exploitation and domination is not a natural state for the human species. Um, it's something that comes later, much later in the human species history.
0: Yeah, so as it's not a natural condition, it has to be enforced um, often through direct application of uh, force and violence from what uh, Lenin terms the special bodies of armed men, which is the military police structure of the state, which is often used to uh, directly crush uh, working class resistance. It's also imposed via the the building of a, a permanent and large scale state bureaucracy which is there to uh, manage and discipline the, the working class on behalf of capital. And the the, the Every aspect of this, the from the people who um, staff the senior positions in those structures all being drawn obviously from the bourgeoisie to the lower parts of it staffed more by the, the middle class or peri-bourgeoisie, every aspect of this is built around securing class rule. So even when uh, the advance of... Um, socialist or workers' parties in terms of winning elections, in terms of uh, having sustained periods in government, be it in Britain or France or the Nordic countries, even where you have all of that and you have all these bits that the social democratic parties are able to bolt onto the state, it never changes its fundamental nature. Um, it's always uh, the entity which is ultimately the possession of the the capitalists themselves. It's never something which is going to be converted to the uh, the possession of labour. Um, so that's Lenin's basic argument, and he calls the state um, a parasitic outgrowth of the capitalist system. In terms of it's something which ca- which is grows up and absorbs a lot of resources from capital to sustain it. So it's a parasite in that st- in that 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 sense. But it's also something which the capitalist system cannot do without. They can't do without the state's ability to actually, um, the state's direct ability of repression, but not just repression, repression with an air of legitimacy attached to it. That's also an important aspect of state organization. Um, so that's the that's the general uh, overview. A couple of um, p- other things to say on that, which is that Lenin also mentions that the um, the there are, obviously he recognizes that there are different forms that the state under capitalism takes which is the um the, the the bourgeois democratic republic being a preferable form of state for the working class rather than the sort of despotic direct dictatorship uh, because even with all the limitations that the um that a democratic republic has having the ability, the working class having um, some small ability to freely associate and to freely organise, elevates that slightly um, in terms of its favorability for the working class than the direct dictatorship through either back, uh, monarchical dictatorship or a fascist military and police regime. So it's important to draw that distinction, that he does see that there are differences in capitalist state, but none of which changes the fundamental nature of it.
1: Yeah. So, um, I think in order for the state to be able to do anything, um, independently, um, truly, it would have to exist outside of the totality of capitalism. Like capital is a totality. It encompasses the entire world, right? Entire human society. Um, and so that's not, it's not possible for the state to exist that way. Right. Um, And so, like, I think um, a lot of the ideas around the state being able to do something independent of the class forces at play um, come from a mistaken view of how society functions, as if some elements of society can exit the mode of production and exist outside. It can't because you need the mode of production to make all the houses and the food and the clothing and all that stuff like that all comes from the existing mode of production as much as the state does right so it arises out of a class society and it has a it has a clear set of institutions that serve a specific function to repress the working class um so the separation is entirely illusory, illusion uh loser um and it i think um, something i was reading um, from a communist and talked about like how this autonomy the the autonomous nature of the state and the fact that we view it as autonomous, including the capitalist class, the capitalist class also tends to view the state as autonomous. This is actually a fetish that results from um, the commodity form of production in capitalist society. So it um, it only seems that way because uh, of the fact that we um produce things and they're alienated from us and we see them as and we interact with one another through things rather than through people but those things are actually the embodiment of social relations of people who work on them and then you know transport them and all these things like they're the embodiment of human labor um, same thing as the state um, like it it, it it adopts the same kind of fetish fet- fetistic um, existence as the commodities in our society does. Um, But I think that, though, like this this illusion has really captured the minds of a lot of theorists, including Marxist theorists, um, which has made um, them kind of lose sight of what the state actually is, and also kind of ignore Lenin's uh, comment on the fact that it is a parasite. So when we see the state acting in ways in which we think are against capitalist interests, it's not because the state has somehow turned against the capitalist class in favor of the working class or in favor of itself, for instance. It's because the state, due to the fact that it arises uh, to uh, reconcile or try to reconcile contradictory interests of the individual capitalists over which which rule society, also uh, will act in contradictory ways, right? So it both will uh, assist accumulation, but it also will federate at the same time, right? like um the the state's impediment of capitalist accumulation uh can happen and it does happen but it's only because it arises out of a situation of contradiction and so it will itself work in contra- contradictory ways but it doesn't mean that its ultimate function is any it might act on, uh, but the dialectic the dialectic is still within the bounds of capitalist domination though like it doesn't mean that it you know it exits it exits those bounds so I, I think that's really the root of why people don't understand the state properly. Like I think they've been captured by the illusion, um, as so many people are when it comes to regular commodities like or commodities writ large.
0: Yeah, and also the fact that it goes back to what Marx originally said, actually, which is the, the idea of the state as a managing committee and as the the managers the, the managers of a particular society uh, they have to act in the the general interest of the continuance of the mode of production and that means that occasionally they're going to they're going to need to go against one particular capitalist or one section of the capitalist class or another to sustain the system as a whole so like when you get a reforming uh, government like for instance, the Roosevelt administration, which brought in the New Deal in the United States, a lot of the capitalist class, or a significant section of it, screamed blue murder about that and complained loudly. And but of course, as Roosevelt himself said, well, what he, what he says, well, what I'm doing is I'm acting, I'm acting in the general interest of my own class here by making a few concessions by curbing somewhat the most sort of vitriolic and reactionary parts of the uh, US capitalist class, curbing only slightly as it turned out. But that's in the general interests of the whole system, which is the the view that the capitalist state has to take when looking over this. And that's certainly how a capitalist state when it is running with a degree of efficiency looks at it. We'll talk more uh, probably in later episodes about how capitalist states in the pro- in a process of degeneration look when they're uh, handling these contradictions. but the other point here is that we in our previous episode we were discussing the um, the what the actions of the uh, the state in Japan in trying to conjure its way out of the uh, long-term stagnation and decline of the Japanese economy and one of the things that sort of comes out of that is the realization that the um the idea of the separation between uh, the state and economic activity which as you were saying is something which is fetishized um that illusion is well that perception is more and more an illusion now given that under this period of late ca- finance capitalism state monopoly capitalism the control of the capitalist state and the end its integration between itself and private so-called private industry is has grown to such an extent where you in terms of both structure and personnel you can't tell where one ends and the other begins and that process is only going to uh, get worse or become greater as time goes on but you'll notice that the capitalists will continue to try and sustain the illusion of separation even if it just doesn't exist anymore
1: yeah and we we talked about that at length length in the japan episode um um, i think looking at finance capital makes it clear as how illusory this whole thing really is (laughs) like it really is just you know calling different financial tools a different word um to make it seem like there's a separation but actually um finance capital shows more than ever decaying finance finance cap um decaying monopoly capital in the west shows now more than ever how the state the military Finance capital Meaning You know Like has Sorry Has come together In um, Together as finance capital Like they're They've melded together Into one thing There's no separation at all um, And they They're literally just Maintaining class dom- Like uh, In Japan uh, the ca- Capitalism is on life support <laughs> um, And with like The entire state structure The entire financial structure Working together To keep it there and just to it's not doing anything at all like it's it's literally not doing anything except maintain domination that's that's all it's doing it's just getting profits for for doing nothing um just to to dominate so like there's no other way of understanding this if you think that the state is somehow autonomous from 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 capitalist domination or can somehow transcend it or can somehow you know be used otherwise like it it can't like it's not it wasn't it was created by the capitalist class for itself like it created this modern state modern liberal state in order to take power from the feudal aristocracy and um, create a situation where in which capital accumulation would be possible, which means a society that is run on liberal rights, rule of law, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I think that the experience of labor post 1945 where it seemed like the state was able to ad- um, adopt these like, more welfare-type um, policies um, that seem to help labor and seem to advance um, the working class's um, life, like, like better their lives, um, kind of ignores, like, I don't... There's never a discussion of the Soviet Union and when these kinds of things are mentioned. Like, the United... Like, the West had to do that because the Soviet Union was a thing, and they had to counter the ideological and structural and other... Uh, influences coming from the existence of the Soviet Union, which is why it worked so hard to destroy the Soviet Union and succeeded. So, yeah. yeah so, like, I think that, that the 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 post um, kind of the post World War II kind of compromise, as people say is a very special, specific historical period, um, because the Soviet Union was such a immense historical um, event. And a piece of progress Um, that was exceptional. Like, workers' revolutions don't happen that often. I think they'll be happening more and more as time goes on. But, like, yeah, like, um, the first kind of successful uh, proletarian revolution was the Paris Commune in um, 1845. Um, So it hasn't really been that long. Like, capitalism has been building up its own things and having bourgeois and failed bourgeois revolutions and, you know, like false starts and, like, uh, retries and stuff for, like, hundreds and hundreds of years, right? It took the capitalist class hundreds of years to become the dominant class in society and take it entirely from the feudal lords. So, um, yeah, like, it doesn't make sense to view, like, a short period in history as, like, the final state or something like that, and to think that the state has suddenly changed its um, purpose after hundreds of years of, of being for one thing only very clearly, in the past um and now it you know it had to change a little bit because there was this historical event of the soviet union so yeah so like do you want to talk about what the proletariat must do <laughs> with, with the state yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: um with this one weird trick <laughs> um the to use uh, to use the meme um the the point about the the continuity of the capitalist state is from vincent lenin Points out he draw again he draws from Marx in the in Marx's book called the the 18th primaire of Louis Bonaparte uh, covering the period where um, Napoleon's nephew um, the uh, the much lesser Bonaparte makes uh, creates the Second Empire out of the failure of the uh, the revolutions of 1848. And Marx says in his analysis that the the state that Bo- the original Bonaparte, Napoleon, built this um, this absolutist state that was actually um, but had a change from the previous absolutist state, and this was something that was centralised, powerful, and institutionalised capitalist property relations more. That state went from being under Napoleon to being back under the Bourbon monarchy to being under the Savoy monarchy to then being under, well, the temporary uh, Democratic Republic and then the Second Empire. That's like 60-plus years of history going, or 50, over 50 years of history, where the state machine has barely changed. It's been added to by different regimes, but it's just been perfected as time goes on. So with all those different changes uh, in, uh, in regime, Marx is arguing, and Lenin follows from this, the nature of the, the class nature of the state does not change. And to follow on from our discussion on um, what the state is, this necessitates for the working class when looking to actually when the working class is looking to actually overthrow capital, the thing they need to do first, Lenin says quite clearly, is they need to smash the state the capitalist state machine. And that's now become a slogan on a fucking t-shirt worn by, you know, students all over the place now. But what he's talking about there is the fact that if, as, you know, Marx says and Lenin certainly practiced, if the the this working class is the subject of history and if the working class is the going to be reconstituted as the as the ruling class in society, then it will need its own form of state in order to do that. It cannot simply lay hold of the institutions of the bourgeois state and attempt to wield them any more than the bourgeoisie themselves could have just simply laid hold of the feudal state and just wielded that as the old feudal kings would. You see... Um, you know, in the English bourgeois revolution of the 1640s and 50s, Cromwell and the radicals, the radical bourgeois, there, don't just lay hold of the state of Charles I. They fundamentally re- con- re- smash that, reconstitute it, and then it's never the same again afterwards. Because they've reconstituted a lot, constituted it along the lines of the, something that is required by the rule of the bourgeoisie. And the same would be true with the the French Revolution and other bourgeois revolutions in that early period. Um, So the same is true when it comes to the working class. The working class cannot lay hold of the bourgeois state and all its different features that we've just outlined and attempt to then institute socialism through that. It just simply is something which you cannot do to actually succeed in constituting themselves as the new ruling class the first thing they have to do is to destroy the means of repression that is available to the old bourgeoisie if you don't do that and if you attempt to reform through the capitalist state or you attempt to reform around it then really you are setting yourself up to a hideous defeat as has happened in the case of um, the the original 9-11 in 1973 in Chile where Uh, Salvador Allende uh, was killed by a US-backed coup, but before that there were numerous chances for the working class to take power, all of which were missed. Or Spain in the 1930s, where you ended up with the the working class moving into revolutionary action but for various different reasons. Uh, The parties of the working class tried to preserve the form of the bourgeois state and again to disastrous effects. And in most specifically in uh, Germany with the founding of the Weimar Republic, the killing, uh, the murder of uh, Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg when they tried to uh, lead a workers uprising, what happened in there was that the, the German Social Democrats tried to... ...claim that they were embodying both um, liberal bourgeois democracy and workers' democracy... ...by maintaining the workers' councils that sprang up in the 1918 revolution against the Kaiser... ...and embodying them within the constitution of the new bourgeois democratic Weimar Republic. In reality, what happened is that those workers' and soldiers' um, councils... ...were essentially sidelined and then basically had all power drained from them and eventually just abolished... Because you can't have a situation where you have two forms of class power running alongside each other, what in Marxist terms would be called a dual power situation. So the first thing the working class has to do is it has to smash apart that bourgeois state as a practical measure for them being able to develop and fully develop its own sources of working class power.
1: Yeah, and um, there is a material basis for this. It's not just a slogan. Right. And uh, this is what Lenin explains in his book, um, that the withering of the state and the smashing of the state, uh, it it needs to be a subjective thing. But it's all it's tied to the fact that wage labor will be deconstructed um, over the course of what he says is a generation, Um, but um, about a generation. But like, you know, he also says, like, who knows how long it's going to take. But um, yeah, like the there's a material basis for the dominance of the state, right? And that's rooted in the bureaucracy, which is people who are put in charge, who are elevated above and beyond everyone else through higher wages and other privileges, um, through um, the army, and through, of course, like wage labor and class domination. So once you destroy the bureaucracy, and Lenin said specifically, you had to do this by simplifying the administration of the state to the point where any most people can do it, um, and making sure that all bureaucrats are uh, bureaucrat wages are brought to the average working person's wage, um, then and also subjecting them to um, immediate recall. Now you've removed the material basis of bureaucracy, for instance. So that's done, all right. So he also says, um, in order to remove the material basis of the army, you have to arm everyone, so that. Um, you know no one has some kind of monopoly on violence on anyone else and then finally you have to end wage labor uh, which removes class domination um, so yeah like it's the, the, these aren't like it's not just like this thing but like I think when people say smash the state and they don't really explain it, um, it it just seems like a like you're gonna overthrow the state and then just start something new and it it is something like that but it it it's, it's part and partial of moving beyond capitalism into socialism, into a new mode of production. Um, you're fundamentally changing um, how society is running and downstream for that, you're fundamentally changing how the state exists. And w- in that process of changing how the state exists, you are withering it away because all of the stuff it used to do will be democratized entirely. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, the, what Lenin's describing... In the book is the process of instituting what he and it was a phrase used by Marx was uh, called the dictatorship of the proletariat, and what that means, as Layla's just been describing, is the we're changing the form of uh, economy, changing uh, removing the uh, the exploitation uh, the, upon which capitalist commodity production is based, and moving to of course a I hope uh, towards towards a socialist economy and society, and what that means in terms of the state is that the um, the working class is then constituted as the ruling class of society. And Lenin says that for in the immediate period after the overthrow of the bourgeoisie and the removal of the bourgeois state, the forces of the bourgeoisie will of course resist, which they did um, for. Almost four years after the um, the coming to power of the Bolsheviks and the seizure of power by the Russian working class, the old bourgeoisie and the old aristocracy combined together to wage a very, a very devastating four-year war. So Lenin says, "Well, you will need to have some kind of state uh, functions, but it will need to be something which is constrained by this hyper-democratization, as we've been saying." So. Um, removal of the privileges of the, of the bureaucracy, for instance, um, as was first shown in the um, Paris Commune of 1870, 71, uh, where they removed the privileges of the police, for instance. Um, the Paris Commune being this directly elected assembly of working class, mostly men actually. Um, The commune removes the privileges from uh, the police, for example, so removes the the higher rates of pay, puts everybody who is a state official only on uh, the average worker's wage. So you remove the elevation of these people above and beyond the working class and then you basically make them into uh, direct servants of the directly elected assembly, and this in the case of the Paris Commune, the assembly of the commune. And that changes the dynamic, as does removing the privileges of the bureaucracy. And the aim of this is, it's a very practical aim in which this is the working class becoming the um, the governing class, the ruling class, and, uh, and not ena- enabling another layer to emerge, which then can reconstitute itself above the working class and then feed off it as a parasite. And that's a very important lesson, because it's something that the Um, The second international socialist parties quite deliberately failed to learn, as Lenin analyzed in his previous book, which we were talking about uh, imperialism, where the second international parties, all of whom, uh, when they got the chance... Uh, entered into bourgeois governments or into some sort of coalition, all of whom accepted all the privileges of office that came from holding an elected position under a capitalist system, and all of whom slowly raised themselves above the working class and benefited directly from the regime of finance capital. And this creates the uh, petty bourgeois inherently opportunist layer which collapses into uh, what Lenin referred to as social chauvinism, ends up supporting World War One, ends up supporting the most hideous reactionary policies of capitalism and ultimately in the case of the German social democracy, these people are the people who order the deaths of Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht and the other communists in Germany in 1919. So this removal of the privileges of bureaucracy and the removal of the um, the the um, ability of the of the state bureaucrats to act act as people over and above the working class is crucial for the building of workers of genuine workers power as is the recall ability of all elected officials so you don't have this permanent layer of um, officialdom in there elected or otherwise and the final point I'll make on this particular section is that Lenin also calls for the removal of parliamentarism by that he means specifically the uh, the privileges and the uh, the prejudices that go along with the bourgeois parliamentary system and there being this this special privileged layer of representatives who become divorced from and apart from the working class from whom they are supposed to for whom they are supposed to act um ab the abolition of parliamentarism he says all comes from this need to actually reduce the uh, the governance of society down to the point where the average working-class person could step into the these governance roles and just do them without the need for supposedly special training or special knowledge. And if you look at our current system and how the current degenerated uh, so-called democracies are behaving, you could see that basically uh, any average person could probably have done better than the uh, state administrators in the last year when deciding what the fuck to do about COVID, for instance. Um, it's hard to see how any just average worker could have done a much worse job um, in fact, I think that's a very good and strong argument for actually for making Lenin's case that the the absurd privileges that go along with the, um, the capitalist state bureaucracy doesn't mean in the slightest that you're going to get rational or let alone humane policy decisions made through it.
1: I mean, I, there's, uh, Lenin talks about how people, uh, how um, Kautsky, for instance, and other people in his time would look at the state and see it um think it's like this really complicated thing and think that we couldn't possibly go without um some of the admin work that's done there like the specialized work um and then it always emphasizes that no like these are it, it's 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 just a machine with component parts that are all used for class dump. there's nothing special about it like there's nothing there really isn't any special such anything special about being a bureaucrat like um i it, anyone can do <laughs> that kind of work like it and i think when lenin was writing he was talking about how we need to either even su- further simplify the um the uh the roles and the um the tasks that are done to run the state um so that anyone could do it but i think that's actually been done already like i think that um people think that bureaucrats are quite smart they think that the people who staff the scientific boards and all these different things are exceptionally intelligent. And I think for sure there are some elements of technical knowledge which would need to be retained. But the actual process of making a decision and getting people to do that is not really, it's something that requires specialized knowledge. Like so for the lockdowns, for instance, just listening to a bunch of doctors and scientists give you their scientific opinion on something, and then making a decision as to what to do. That is a political, it is a purely political thing, right? There's nothing like something that there's nothing outworldly about the intelligence that and the skills you would need to do that. It really depends on who you're answerable to. And that's why we saw the results that we did, because the, the bureaucrats that were listening to the scientists are Number one, very stupid, because they actually don't have hard jobs and they don't have hard lives and they don't have any a reason to um, get smarter. Um, so they don't. And they also don't have to live with the consequences of their actions. That's something that Lenin talks about, where um, the, the, the difference between um, a workers kind of government and a bourgeois government is that the bourgeoisie don't have to live with the decisions that they make for everyone else. They don't have to stay stuck in a small apartment for the duration of the lockdown, like with their kids or whatever, because they don't live that kind of life because they're elevated above above everyone else for a variety of reasons. Like they don't have to stop traveling, you know. (laughs) They can still take a holiday, in which they did during this pandemic. But when you have to live with the decisions of your own of your of your um, politics, and when you can be recalled at any time, that really changes the game and that changes the way in which you make those decisions. Um. So so yeah, people will like people often like I think this argument comes up again and again like oh is this just too complicated like I could never do this like you know I can never understand this for instance like everyone has the capacity to ascertain objective reality for sure like I think for definitely I'm not gonna like it's not like you can anyone can just become a doctor overnight or can become a scientist overnight but you can definitely understand the main concepts of what's going on there and you can understand the process through which evidence is gathered you can understand the um the the uh, the the weight of such evidence, and you can understand, uh, you know, dialectical logic, and also just um, basic logic, and that's like a lot of this stuff is just like a lot of decisions that politicians make that they that they kind of cover up with like this veneer of science and this veneer of like complexity are really just a series of deductive, um, deductive and inductive uh, decisions that they never truly. Exp- they never actually explain their thought process. They just cover it up with like evidence or like the stupid model that never pans out or the expert said so-and-so, but they never actually explain why they're doing something. And there's a reason because they either don't know or it's just because they're maintaining domination and they don't want you to know that. So it's really, nothing about this is complicated. Yeah,
0: for the cleverer ones that uh, seeking to just maintain bourgeois domination, for the current <laughs> generation of politicians, it's just that they are <laughs> fucking dumb. <laughs>
1: No, I just want to say, I think, I think at this point, like society kind of runs itself. Like, (laughs) I don't think that those in power are running society. I think that, like, just in in Japan, I I think that they're completely focused on finance capital. They're completely focused on making sure the stock market prices stay up. They're not paying attention to things that are going on on the ground. Um, It's 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 yet another another point in favor of the working class that the working class keeps society running. While these clowns are you know fiddling away with more q e here more uh, more debt monetization there, and all these different like little tricks what
0: if we move the decimal point three places to the right <laughs> and that would basically and and then put it all on bitcoin there we go that 's it yeah they 're we, inventing
1: new um, new uh, electronic currencies, that kind of innovative stuff so they're they 're very distracted
0: <laughs> yeah uh, it's also it 's also worth making the point that the um there was of course arguments about like well can the working class possibly take power can they possibly understand the tremendously complicated methods of running society and uh, to to draw on your point uh, the working class already does run an awful lot of society and also in the 100 years since lenin wrote the state and revolution We've actually seen a lot of advances in terms of mass literacy, mass numeracy, to the point where this administration of, society, of economy and society is now a lot more straightforward than it was. You don't have to rely on, like, the telegraph to send decisions over, you know, what uh, production to, uh, between different uh, aspects of the economy or to order certain things to make a certain institution work all of that can now be done in seconds via modern communications technology uh, Of which, and of course workers are very much versed in a lot of this because if you have to work in certain industries you have to be computer literate, you have to be num- have a basic degree of numeracy and literacy as well so we're in, a- in actual fact we're even further towards the point now where we can reach the what Lenin describes as just simply the administration of things without the without the profit motive we can you can move to the administration of things a lot easier than you would think
1: yeah and i at this point, as lenin says um the state is actually fettering the forces of production because it the the capitalist mode of production has exhausted how much it can really advance human society so Through bureaucracy and through its focus on finance capital, which is the only capital that exists now, innovation is being depressed or destroyed or inhibited through monopoly capital capitalism and the mode in which it competes. So it's actually the state is actually fettering things. Like it started to, for instance, it's degraded science to the absolute minimum. (laughs) For instance, Um, so it's not doing any. Like whatever good you might have argued it did before in terms of advancing the capitalist mode of production is um, and I think I think any working person knows this. Like they'll have some stupid boss who tells them to do stuff in a dumb way, and they know there's a better way of doing it, but they can't do it because their boss says so. <laughs> I think that's like a very good anecdote for how society goes generally. Anyone who's had to who's had to deal with bureaucracy knows this. Like the simplest thing will take you like five weeks to get done. Um, you know, that's not the smartest way of doing it. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah, I, I, this argument is completely silly. Anyone can run it. Like, it, definitely workers can run their workplaces much better than a capitalist can because they're not, they don't, they don't know anything about the way in which workplaces run at all. Like they're just, they have their eyes on the numbers and that's it. But um, yeah, when it comes to the state machine, um, I think that is doing way more harm than good at this point. Um, If you can just remove the bureaucracy and, you know, give people access to, you know, like, I mean, just just any given thing, like trying to get like a playground built in Toronto takes like years because it has to go through the city hall and it has to get the approvals from all the committees and it has to do this and that. Like, you know, these things are not necessary. There's no reason why if we want a playground somewhere and everyone decides, okay, let's do it the next step is to actually do it. Um, but in bourgeois politics, the next step is to discuss it and do a study and do a vote and do another vote, send it to committee, do another study and do another vote. Like, you know, it's it's got all these extra steps. And I mean, it's just because it's, it's a parasite. It arises from a contradictory situation. And so it will have these like negative effects as a result.
0: Yeah. And then they don't build the playground, but sell the land <laughs> to developers.
1: Yeah, and the conclusion. <laughs> the conclusion gets said is, anyway.
0: <laughs> we we sold it to be built on um, by a luxury flat developer, um, but now the housing bubble's burst and everyone's gone bankrupt, um, which is basically how the uh, the local authorities in Manchester and the Northwest do do things. Um, but the other uh, the, the other crucial point about the working class potentially uh, running running society is that the um, the working class is predisposed by the role that you're in as a working class person if you're going into a workplace every day as still all the way through the pandemic as we've pointed out at length the working class is um you are predisposed towards a because it's necessary cooperative working Cooperative working is not encouraged by the nature of capitalism, but it's necessary for capitalism to have a working class which learns to cooperate. And therefore, through cooperation, you know, obviously profit is made by the labor, but also it's where a lot of innovation comes from. And to go to the point about innovation stif- being stifled by the capitalist state in this sort of um, state of um, mono- state monopoly capitalism in decay, Um, How many times, I mean, we've all experienced this, do um, workers themselves come up with ideas for actually how to improve their workplaces, improve their sites of production? But actually, they either are unable to express them or they're disincentivized from actually coming up with innovative ideas because the boss will use them just to fire them. And just to institute labor saving measures. So if you're confronted with a situation where you're thinking, well, I've got all these ideas as to how this to make this run better, but if we or we tell, if we. Actually push these ideas Because how many times have you had it where The boss turns around and says I want to hear your ideas about how to make this A better place to work and everyone thinks Well fuck no, I'm not going to help you Because all you're going to do is turn around And say well thanks to the the, these ideas You've you've given me, I've worked out How we can now lay off half the workforce And make the rest of you work longer So (laughs) that's So rational So rational, much profit (laughs) Um, The The innovative process which could be unleashed by doing away with the um, exploitation of labor, by doing away with the um, exploitative method by which capitalism operates, there could be a much more innovation unleashed by doing away with that and actually unfettering the population from the bourgeois state as well. Uh, because at the moment, the reason one of the reasons why everything's stagnating is because we're in a situation where capitalism and the capitalist state is fettering the productive forces to such an extent. And there could be a real burst in innovation if we actually move beyond that.
1: Yeah, this is exactly what happened with the feudal lords. They were fettering the advance of human society at that point. And that's why the capitalists took them over. That's why... Um... Like in Japan, we were talking about just a few days ago, um, they, they did their revolution there, their failed revolution, like partially failed, because the way in which feudalism was administered in that country and in other countries is that it split up the country into these fiefdoms. And you couldn't travel easily between the borders. And they want the mercantile capitalists, like which is the, um, the young bourgeoisie, wanted to be able to travel easily and sell their stuff. Um, So they had to destroy that separation. And so they did the revolution in order to centralize the administration of the state. And that's what's happened in all all bourgeois revolutions. A big part of it is centralization. Um, And so we are also being faced now with a fettering of of the productive forces and of, of human flourishment for sure. Um, And so a new kind of state is needed to enable that. And that is one which will require some centralization, but also more democratization. Like, I think the example you gave is really good. Like the fact that people are kept from reducing their work hours, uh, implementing ideas that reduce their work hours because they'll get fired um, is a great example of that. And also, like, just all of the waste that goes, uh, all of the waste that goes into um the essential functions of the state like the judiciary is a huge massive like institution in all advanced capitalist nations that suck up a ton of money and time like going through the legal legal structures of society of of the capitalist society the military of course is an immense strain on human resources um and yeah, of course the bureaucracy, a bunch of dumb people who sit around get paid big salaries and like don't literally, I don't even know what they do. Like they don't even do policies anymore. Like they just sit around and tweet or something. Um, so uh, they're they useless. Tweet about
0: how hard life is being a uh, senior bureaucrat and how they're actually quite <laughs> repressed.
1: <laughs> it's just like with these lockdowns, like, um. anyways, like like it, it, another example, just one last example of how the bureaucracy is so stupid and useless. It's like. So we wanted to avoid the overwhelm of the hospitals, right? That was the whole idea with these lockdowns. Okay, so there's two ways we can avoid the overwhelm of the hospital system. We can either add more capacity or we could try to lock everyone down, I guess. Why why wasn't that first option ever attempted? (laughs) Why didn't we train more nurses? Why didn't we train more doctors? Why didn't we get more hospital beds and just make sure there's enough healthcare for everyone? Why is that so hard to do? It's because we live under capitalism, and it's it's impossible to do under capitalism. You cannot have a humane, like rational in the sense of the human species solutions to stuff. You can only have stuff that aid capital capitalist accumulation, which is irrational from the point of view of the proletariat, which is the universal point of view. Yet another example, so, we could go on and on with this stuff.
0: Yeah, so to uh, add to that, the only solution they had here was to chuck money at private healthcare providers. So but it, didn't even, it the, didn't even,
1: but it didn't. It didn't prevent them from doing lockdowns, did it? They still did it. No,
0: it didn't. <laughs> yeah, So exactly. They threw all this. They threw billions at this, and also then a lot of the capacity remained unused anyway. So it, the only winner out of that was if you owned shares in a private healthcare company, in which case you did really fucking well. Everybody else got, and now now you're facing healthcare rationing, and then the idiot that runs the health service comes out and says well, maybe we should have more he- private sector involvement despite the fact that all it did was absorb money and produce nothing. And that's, again, that's just another example of why the state and the capitalist system it serves is in such profound decay. This is, this is just literally parasitism at this stage.
1: Yeah, so don't, don't let anyone ever tell you you cannot take the state and smash it and then run it for yourself. <laughs> don't let yeah. anyone tell um, you that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> don't don't let anybody take that dream away um but yeah i i hope that what we've done is like take that take the idea of the um take the idea of replacing the state removing it or smashing the state machine and what we aim to do with this is take that beyond like a slogan on a fucking t-shirt which is uh you know we've all owned it well i did at university anyway um a dumb phrase that you shout out But it represents something very real And it represents also a very real hope For humanity in general Which is that the potential for a situation Where we could just move to the, the the state being gone And we're just in the administering of society And that's something which everybody Has the capability to participate in That's a potentially incredibly um, optimistic point of view And a hopeful point of view that is very much needed at a time when the system, whether uh, the system and the way it stands, generates a lot of uh, negativity and apocalypticism within people. And it does that because we're in a situation of decay. But by reading and being familiar with the arguments Lenin makes in the state and revolution about the potential for the future society, that's something which can actually give you a profound optimism of, of what human beings are truly capable of in the good sense of the term and that's why I would encourage everybody to read it and engage with it because it can it can be a mind um, it can be a mind expanding experience in the non narcotic sense of the term um, did you want to uh, add anything else to finish off because I think we've covered most of it there
1: uh, yeah we've been talking for a while whoa um, yeah so yeah. Uh, no, um, Lennon's great. Um, don't listen to the haters. Ignore the haters and losers. Yeah, um, And uh, yeah, like I think it doesn't mean that there's no place for reform. And I don't think that me, like you or me, like Alex and me, um, are against reforms. But I think we have to f- properly understand what those reforms actually do. Like when we're looking at the Pro Act, for instance. And never lose sight of the fact that um, a revolution is necessary for for the proletariat to actually win um, freedom. Um, so a line in this book that I really like is um, when Lenin says you have to uh, have revolutionary boldness, yeah you need to, you know, be aware of the material conditions in which you're working in and make an analysis that's congruent with that, but never lose sight of uh, the end goal, which is the revolution. And Lenin is probably the best person for, for, for balancing those two things and knowing when it's time for revolution and knowing when it's time for reform. Um, but never losing sight of that revolution and never like losing the revolutionary boldness. And um, I think in his writing, Lenin's really good at reminding everyone of that constantly, like having some good material analysis, historical analysis, but also never forgetting to mention revolution
0: (laughs) exactly and i think on there we can we can leave it for this episode we'll be back again next week so from both of us we'll see you again soon bye okay cool
2: Sœur, c'est ainsi que tu me surnommes Tu crois bien sûr me connaître mieux que personne Marie-Colère existe aussi, fais bien attention Je te l'ai déjà dit cent mille fois sur tous les temps marie douceur a beaucoup, beaucoup de patience Oui mais un jour tu verras entrer dans la danse Si que tu me surnommes Tu crois bien sûr me connaître Mieux que personne